You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Welcome to Communication Mixdown, I'm Rima Rattan. Books that offer readers the chance to change their lives or selves for the better seem to be proliferating. Given their prevalence, it's likely you or someone you know has bought or borrowed from a library some kind of self-help book. But do self-help books really help? Can they do harm? And are they really increasing in number like they seem to be to me? To answer these questions and more, I invited a psychology professor and a philosopher to try to unravel what self-help books are all about. I'll let them introduce themselves. Uh, my name is Damon Young. I'm a philosopher and author of nonfiction and fiction. Uh, my most recent book is On Getting Off, uh, Sex and Philosophy. I'm uh, Nick Haslam and I'm a professor of psychology at Melbourne University and uh, write on a range of topics, including stigma, dehumanisation, and classification of mental illness. This is a fairly broad kind of starting question, but, but what are self-help books, Nick? Well, I think it's a fuzzy category because there are probably a range of books, some of which try to um, enhance us and some of which just try to inform us. But uh, I think at a first approximation, maybe a self-help book is one that uh, the writer intends the reader to grow from in some way or to overcome sort of some sort of problem. And again, I've written once that I think there's a meaningful distinction between two kinds of them. There are some where the book was intended as a sort of non-flesh and blood coach where you try to enhance some aspect of your life, be a better lover, um, be you know, way less, be sexier, uh, improve uh, upon your current state. And there are others which are maybe more focused on being a, uh, a non-flesh and blood therapist where it's targeting some particular problem or trouble you have, you know, overcome your depression, overcome your anxiety, overcome your sexual dysfunction, whatever it might be. So uh, again, that's a, a, that's a kind of definition that probably isn't quite good enough for a philosopher. But I think the genre is essentially anything where the book is meant to help you improve yourself. Devin, I, I feel like you should add something to this because um, one of the examples that Nick gave was to be a better lover and on getting off, essentially, you know, <laughs> in a way, it does that. And, and that's a book by a philosopher. Yeah, okay. So I, th- I think we can, we can say first up that any book can be helpful if you can translate its experience into some changes in your life. And that's so I'm trying to make the broadest possible statement first. Um, I actually don't think books are primarily therapeutic. I don't think they're there to heal us or transform us. I think they're often not very edifying. What they do do at the most basic level is offer us experiences. Um, you know, for example, uh, reading War and Peace, Tolstoy's War and Peace. One of the things I took from that, and it sounds absurd and glib and twee, but was that I ought to be more kind to my mother. Now, War and Peace is not a self-help book, 
but that was a practical message that I took from the book. So let's move along a step. Self-help books, if for me, are books that do that work for you, that instead of just offering you an experience, some kind of basic experience, whether it's a description of the world or a description of what they think human nature is or a description of geopolitics, they say, here are concrete things you can do to make yourself better in some way. It might be aesthetic. Here's how to dress better. It might be sexual. Here's how to go down on someone better. It might be uh, political. Here's how you can rid yourself of ideology. Or it might be, here's how you need to think differently. I'm not going to give you concrete steps to change your life uh, in terms of habits or practices. I'm going to just give you ways you can think a bit differently about the world and in doing so, rid yourself of some anxiety or some grief or something. So I would define self-help as books that try to do some of the work of translation for you because you can always find something helpful in a book or something that will, something that will hinder you. There's always something there, some message, some idea, some practice. Self-help books kind of give you more support. Now, I, that's one way of categorizing it. You know, philosophers love their categories. We could use all kinds of other categories. Um, we could range them in terms of their genre. Are they psychology, philosophy? Are they aesthetics? Are they fashion? Are they art? Um, we could also divide them, and I, I do do this, we could divide them between those that are well-informed and rigorous and honest and those that are bullshit charlatanism. Um, I think that's a very helpful category. Um, so there's all kinds of categories we could use, but I think that the basic thing is, yeah, they, they're trying to do something so we don't have to, to simplify things for us or codify or taxonify. Yeah, so they're more explicit in the in the message. So you could take something from literature and find it edifying, but this tells you this is exactly. the thing. Right? Exactly, which is why it can so often go wrong because it turns into it. it um, it oversimplifies a subtle or complex world and um, says, no, no, it all actually just means this. You know, this whole big metaphysical picture, that's why you should clean your room. And it's like, well, I don't really need that whole picture to clean my room. I think we agree on this. I, I'm framing it in terms of the writer's intention and, and uh, Damon in terms of the support it gives. And obviously you're not going to find war and peace in the self-help section. But of course, all sorts of books can uh, improve us and maybe make us worse. Certainly. No author sets out to write a book uh, hoping that it won't influence people in some way. But yeah, there's, there's going to be important distinctions along all these sorts of dimensions that Damon's picking out. Uh, I think the one thing I would just add to say, though, is I kind of agree that bad self-help oversimplifies, but I also think simplification can be very useful. And I remember my early days training as a therapist, and I never became a good therapist. I was way too convinced of the complexity of human beings and the messages I was trying to get across to people were uh, so exquisite in their detail that no one could follow them. So I think being simple um, and uh, framing things in ways that we, we intellectuals know uh, are overly simple actually can be strategically quite helpful. So I think it's a question of whether it's good simplicity or bad simplicity. Sure. Yeah, look, I, I agree. And I, I think one of the really important principles is things like checklists. Um, humans, we are forgetful, distracted creatures. And if there are habits we need to get into, whether, whether physical or mental, 
checklists can be enormously powerful tools. You just have to make sure that they are the, the right kind of habits, the right kinds of practices. Um, you know, and I know these are really important in hospitals, for example, checklists in surgery, checklists in triage. That's super important. Nick, you've been doing a little bit of work. You mentioned that it's like an $11 billion industry in America, but I feel like America, as an example, is probably not a good one. It's probably strongest in America, self-help. There's no sense of what it's worth in Australia. No, but I mean, I think um, we like to think that we're very different from the Americans, but I think we're actually quite similar. And I have no numbers, of course, but I would be inclined to divide it by the difference in our proportion in uh, population, maybe take off 20%. That'd be my guess. Uh, we're not that different. There's a huge market for this sort of material here for cultural reasons. You know, I think this uh, it's all ultimately, I would say, the self-help industry grounded in individualism, grounded in the desire to improve oneself on one's own and to do it more cheaply than with uh, professional uh, help. And, uh, you know, there's lots of trends coming through from North America that influence us. Is it a growing phenomenon or is it has it been constantly... A re- relatively constant as a layman impression I have that it's it's a, it's a, it's snowballing there are more and more um, is that a true impression do you think I think it is I don't have any data to back that up but my impression is it's growing there's this proliferation of voices having said that I remember looking in bookstores you know back in my undergraduate years in the 80s and the psychology section was even then dominated by sort of non-serious help self-help kind of stuff to my chagrin uh, rather than you know serious works of scholarship so I think it's always been a large marketplace it's just growing because there's more voices um, and there's bigger audiences I think it's worth noting that self-help as a genre is really old I mean um, if you look at stoicism um, that began in the Hellenistic era the third century it might be a category mistake calling it self-help because it's that's a very much a modern category with modern sense of individualism and capitalism and so on But if you look at what the Stoics were doing, that is straightforwardly a form of self-help. It is often very inwardly directed. I'm not saying they didn't have an ethos, they did. But a lot of their emphasis is on how can you calm yourself? How can you avoid needless mental pain? There's a a very strong sense of, I don't want to be unfair to the Stoics, but it's no coincidence that in a time of empire, you see a withdrawal of philosophy from kind of the state, the public self. You see a withdrawal into the self. How can, I, how can I improve myself? How can I make myself better? Why? Because that's what I have power over. I don't have the same political power I might have once had, but I can shape myself in ways that are wise, just, beautiful, and so on. And um, so the Stoics were doing something that I think we would recognise as self-help uh, with a very strong ethical component that's often missing from today's self-help. If you look at, you know, 6th century, I think it is, Berthius, um, the philosopher, Consolations of Philosophy, one of the whole purposes of that book is to say, here's how you can feel better in adversity. Well, he's um, about to get beheaded, right? Like he writes that. He's about to get, yeah, he's waiting to, to, be, to be beheaded, yes, um, or, or at least executed. And the idea is, how can I calm myself? How can I approach this with equanimity? Um, you see other genres of self-help in the, the sort of late medieval and, and Renaissance period where, you know, there were books devoted to like the kingly virtues. How can you be a good prince or a good king, a good leader? 
how, how can you embody the, the, the Christian virtues? These are all forms of self-help. You know, they, they show that there is a, a perennial need to tweak. Uh, I'm not going to say character because I'm not sure that's possible, but to kind of tweak your mental and physical habits. Yeah, and there's a big resurgence of, of Stoicism right now in the last sort of five years. There's a lot of um, republication of those books, are there? Yes, it's, it's huge. And um, some of it's very good. I mean, some of it is written by people who are Stoic philosophers or neo-Stoics. Um, it's often informed by um, uh, neuroscience, but also by psychology and sometimes um, by you know, other social sciences. So it's, it's, it's kind of a really well-informed big picture of um, psyche and society and how we act within it, plus with an ethical dimension. And that's good stuff. Some of it, on the other hand, is just kind of trying to feel better using the Stoics. And that's it. And I look, trying to feel better is, is an important goal. But again, it's been stripped of everything other than that goal. So it's a kind of, again, it's a withdrawal from a kind of ethical and political self. When you were talking, Nick, about um, pop psychology, it's that sort of, it's stripping the academic or deeper sort of intellectual depth. It, this seems like pop philosophy. Look, I think this is it. And, you know, ultimately, it's not always a bad thing to, to, to strip some of the detail out. People don't necessarily want to read about all the science that something's grounded and they don't necessarily know what a meta-analysis is, um, but they do want to know what will work for them concretely, uh, which, you know, I have to say also is what most students want these days as well. How do I use this? Uh, not um, what's the intellectual history of it or what's the evidence base for it. So, yeah, look, I think, I think it's not a bad thing that good writers can distill down the essence of good ideas. And I know Dame is not saying that. Um, but obviously, if it's too dumbed down, uh, it, it sort of, uh, you know, denatures the original ideas. Uh, but my guess would be the more simplified something is, the better it sells. 3CR, here to stay. Have you heard it on the news? About this fascist growth thing? Evil men with racist views Spreading all across the land They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yena Passaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa, and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. You're with Communication Mixdown on 3CR, and we're talking about self-help books and whether they in fact do help with guests, Professor of Psychology, Nick Haslam, and philosopher, Dr. Damon Young. What sort of need do self-help books fulfill? Yeah, you know, one is, uh, most of us recognize that we're not quite perfect yet. Uh, and, uh, you know, just trying to get better at the things that we aren't so good at. And as I say, some of those things I think can be framed well in terms of improving areas of strength where we're not quite as strong as we might want to be and some are more in terms of uh, remedying some lack we feel we have so some of it's just trying to feel better some of it's trying to be better at particular activities uh, that's not a very uh, know, uh, illuminating and deep analysis of human motivation but i think uh, it's simply this desire to be better at certain things um, and i think for the for the self-help genre depending how broadly you define it often that has to do with emotional states and relationships yeah look i i 
I don't disagree. Um, it's it's funny. There is a very strong tension, um, which Nick just reminded me of in self help. Whereas there is some help that is straightforwardly about the idea that you are lacking something and you need to be better. Um, and then there's a whole other side of self-help, which is you're not lacking anything. You don't need to get better. You need to come to terms with, you know, who and what you are and um, not feel that anxiety. <laughs> and um, that's a really interesting tension. And it's, it's fascinating seeing what people are drawn to. You know, are, are they drawn to the idea that they are a work in progress, that they are imperfect, that they need to do better, or are they drawn to, no, 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 calm down, relax, it's okay, just you're fine as you are. Speaking purely personally, I draw on both those tendencies, I think, in trying to be better than, than I am. I, I sort of hanging my hat on the hook there. I, I, I think my tendency is to try to be better than I, than I am. But I know in order to do that, um, I often need to realise what I can't control, calm down about certain hang-ups that I have, alleviate certain weird eccentric anxieties. I'm not saying I'm having a bob each way. I'm saying in order to be better than I am, sometimes I need to come to terms with what I can't change. That's a simplistic message, but it's an enormously powerful one. Yeah, I think there's, uh, I think at one point, Marty Seligman wrote a book or, or a chapter in a book on you know, the wisdom to know the difference, which is that sort of idea. Some things one can change, some things are hard to change. And uh, what Damon's saying really resonates with me. There's actually some, I think, reasonably good social psychology on this uh, to do with, um, it's been popularized in the idea of mindsets, where um, they find that human beings differ a lot, at least the kind of human beings who do psychology studies, in uh, terms of whether they believe that they are works in progress who can change, and they call that an incremental theory of personality, versus those who um, believe that they are essentially fixed, uh, and they call that entity theories. And if you have an entity theory, you believe that you really can't change very much, and maybe the I'm okay, you're okay message of resign yourself happily to, to who you are, you're good enough, maybe that sort of message resonates better there. And on the other hand, if you have this incremental theory or growth mindset, you're more receptive to the idea that you're, the change is possible and you'll go in search of ways to improve yourself. And it seems to me that both of the extremes on this uh, continuum are um, not very helpful. If you feel that you're completely stuck and that you're a finished product, of course, um, if you're not happy with who you are, um, that's a recipe for depression. And if you think that you're uh, a fixed product and you're pretty good, that's a recipe for complacent narcissism. Yeah. Whereas if you believe that you're too much of a work in progress, uh, then I think you think that change is easy and, and, and change isn't easy. If you think change is, is easy, then you can snap your fingers and become a better person. You're in for major disappointments or, yeah. and or reading hundreds of self-help books. Which I, I guess that this is the sort of the bigger question that I want to sort of um, lead to is, is do self-help books work? Is it, is it possible for a person to change? <clears throat> I mean, I, I would defer to um, to Nick on the quest on the sort of the psychological research here. From from what I've read, and it's also from experience, I would say fundamental characters don't change. Um, I think there are certain tendencies or dispositions that are very strong over a life course, but a there's probably a little bit of um, wiggle room there, and b. I would say that habits can change, physical and mental habits. Um, so 
I know roughly the kind of person I am, um, the, the sort of the, the enduring psyche that, that, that unfolds, but I've changed my habits various times in order to adjust what I think are shortcomings in my personality. Look, I think the, this is actually a really interesting uh, question. Uh, you, you know, the, the dominant trend for the last 20 years in the psychology of personality is that people can change more than we thought. So if you take the kind of Freudian tradition, um, psychoanalytic tradition, where your personality is largely settled in how you proceed through childhood, that's clearly false. Uh, there's so much evidence when you actually measure people's personality longitudinally that um, some people change a lot and quite a few people change a little. And there are predictable patterns of maturation um, sure. that people go through as they get older. So I think the, the news is sort of better about the possibility of change than we might have thought not that long ago, supported by pretty you know, respectable longitudinal uh, research. And people do become less changeable with time. So the degree of change over a, a decade tends to diminish as you get older on average. But change still happens uh, all the time. And a lot of it is at least superficially you know, good change, you know, less neurotic, less of more conscientious, more friendly. Uh, so a lot of these things do occur. So change is possible. But I think this idea that you can change your habits more easily than your personality is spot on. And really, that's how one ought to go about change, changing around the edges. Because I would say that really, there isn't this deep ontological distinction between outside stuff like habits and inside stuff like character. Because I think how many of us think about personality, that inside is really just the sort of averaging out of your habits, the summary of, of how you tend to behave. Personality is not necessarily this, this deep, mysterious essence. It's rather just the, the typical ways in which you think, feel, and behave. And if you change your habits you know, gradually over time, your personality is changing by that fact alone. That's why I mentioned dispositions, because I think it's really dangerous to think there's some ontological stuff there, some soul that is an essence that is you, whether God-given or natural. But uh, yeah, I also, I'm trying to avoid in philosophy the idea of this kind of blank slate or pure freedom that you get in Sartre where it's just, you know, the, the, um, the discrete little particle of willing soul can do whatever, it's want, whatever it wants. And I think, no, we are shot through with all kinds of urges and longings and instincts that have weight behind them. And... The conscious mind pretends that they're not there, pretends that it's sovereign, but it's not. It's, it, it arises from this bundle of stuff. So, and I recognise fully that some of that stuff I can tweak, I can alter new, new habits, um, and I don't think there is a self aside from this cluster of stuff. I'm kind of with Hume there. But I also know how much weight is there and also how much weight I don't even know about. How much of me is this, um, this sort of <laughs> heavy inertia um, that I haven't even figured out yet, if that makes sense. You can read a book and it might be really helpful and break it down for you, but in the end, it's, I kind of wondered if you need a, a certain degree of receptivity. You can read books and they can, they can sort of wash yes. over. Absolutely. Yeah. In fact, the, the whole premise of my book, The Art of Reading, is that a book isn't a widget. It doesn't do anything to you. You, you have to, you need a certain preparedness. And I, in the book, I talk about the virtues like, you know, courage or, or pride or patience. 
without those, you can get nothing from the book aside from a fleeting experience. And sometimes that's fine, but we, we claim too much for books when we think of them as like little factories for producing good souls. It doesn't work that way. Yeah, and I think that it's, it's, it's clearly true in the case of self-help books. I mean, there are very few things that will change your mind without you engaging with them. I mean, you can give people a transcranial magnetic stimulation and that might make them less depressed. You can force feed them a, a pill. You can give them ECT and those things will change their minds. But if it's, a, if it's text, of course you have to engage with them. And I guess the question is really finding the right text that is going to change you if you engage with it. But yeah, I think there are a lot of people who read um, self-help books without really fully engaging, without doing the exercises or without really uh, relating this to their personal experience. And they're going to get very good at using the language in glib ways, but they're not necessarily going to change very much. So I think you do need to have a good self-help book, which is one that is going to be the the, the key that fits your lock. Um, but you have to be a very engaged lock if that's not a, terrible metaphor and i think you know part of what we we do when we're looking for self for help books and, and look they do work there's evidence you can call it fancy names like bibliotherapy uh if you prescribe books and not just self-help books you prescribe war and peace if you want it does it has been shown to enhance a range of things not necessarily as well as uh, one-to-one therapy or counseling but these things can make a difference i think the challenge is finding books that resonate with your unique situation in life and just in the same way as we're not going to resonate with every therapist we go to see we're not going to resonate with every book i mean some ones are going to take approaches that just don't fit us some some of the voice will just seem too too optimistic or too pessimistic or too eggheady or or too uh, common and you know we shouldn't be surprised that not every book is going to work for every person but you know some books may work for the person who is engaged and ready for that book at that time I was just going to say, and sometimes you can choose books that you will use in a bad way. You know, for example, if you're picking up fascist propaganda because it props up your sense of um, wounded white masculine identity, that's a variety of self-help, but it's, I wouldn't call it help. Mm. It's, 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 you're going to, you're going to use that to sort of shore up the worst of yourself. That was philosopher Dr. Damon Young talking about how books can pose a danger to our well-being as well as helping us. That's all we have time for tonight. Many thanks to Damon and Professor of Psychology at the University of Melbourne, Nick Haslam, for their time and thoughts. I hope you find the right self-help book for yourself, dear listener, if that's what you need. We're going out tonight with a song chosen by Nick. This is Happiness by Goldfrapp.
Listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.